This episode brought to you by the Velvet Hammer Podcast. This is Young Lawyer Rising from the American Bar Association Young Lawyers Division and Legal Talk Network. I'm Sonia Russo. On this episode, we're talking about an issue that's very close to my heart, racism in the legal profession. We're discussing racism in our profession because it needs to be openly acknowledged. For those of us who are people of color, we've all experienced racism professionally, and it hurts a lot. We'll hear from young lawyers in Detroit, Minneapolis, Austin, and Washington, D.C., about how they've experienced racism in the legal profession and their advice for handling it. Just an editorial note that while normally we won't mention the race of someone we're interviewing, here, it's relevant. So we'll highlight how each of these young lawyers identify themselves. Of course, we can't talk about racism without acknowledging that our profession continues to have a problem with welcoming and retaining people of color. So we'll also address the lack of diversity in our profession and how legal employers can do more. I hope you're as inspired as I am listening to these lawyers' stories and their advice for how to move our profession forward. Stick with us through this episode, even if you feel uncomfortable. That's the only way our profession is ever going to change. Let's get started. For lawyers of color, when we experience racism in our profession, it's often implicit. Tiana Towns is a senior litigation associate at Dorsey & Whitney in Minneapolis, who's been practicing for over six years. Tiana, who identifies as an African-American woman, explained that the racism she's experienced has been less explicit, but still hurtful. I've never experienced a situation where someone was like, hey, Black woman, like, you can't do this sort of thing. I think lawyers are definitely smarter than that, right? So I've never experienced a situation where it's just blatant, flat out, you know, I'm treated differently because I am a Black woman. So most of my experiences are, I would almost call them biases, right? Everything that I've experienced is kind of just little kind of nits, a hundred little scratches, I would say. Tiana's experience was echoed by the other young lawyers we talked to, and that's been my experience too. During my first week on the job in Colorado after moving from New Mexico, my colleagues repeatedly assumed I was an intern when they met me and expressed surprise that I'm a lawyer. I've been a lawyer for almost eight years, and I haven't been mistaken for an intern in a long time. After this occurred multiple times, I finally asked my colleague why she thought I was the intern. She stumbled through her response, explaining that I looked young. She might have really thought I looked young, but that's not why she assumed I was an intern. That's implicit bias. So what are these hundred little scratches that Tiana referred to? Those are microaggressions. Here's how Tiana defined a microaggression. I would say, you know, microaggressions are sort of these little tiny differences in the way that maybe a person of color or just someone who is marginalized or different or in a minority group, the way they experience things from folks of the majority group, for example, sort of having to go above and beyond or take the extra mile or do the extra thing or spend the extra time before you can sort of be on an equal playing field from the perspective of that majority person. Andrew Harrison directs the Education Justice Project at Texas Appleseed, a public interest justice center based in Austin. Andrew identifies as a Black man, uses the gender pronouns he, his, and has been practicing law for over four years. Here's how he defined a microaggression. Oh, well, you're so articulate. And, oh, you're not quite like the other ones. And, you know, other such, like, very kind of obviously loaded language, right? Like, well, I'm a lawyer. I am articulate. Yeah, I think that's the expectation, right? Or, yeah, I'm in the honors program in my high school, right? So I should be here and I deserve to be here. So they are these slights that are made by people to suggest that, you are the exception and that otherwise you shouldn't be in a space that you occupy. You know, there have been other things in my life where I've been more explicitly 
called out like, oh, you're an Oreo, right? So you're black on the outside, white on the inside. Paulina Vera is a professorial lecturer in law and a supervising attorney at the George Washington University Immigration Law Clinic in Washington, D.C. Paulina identifies as multi-ethnic and Latina and has been practicing law for five years. So the way I define microaggressions is an action or a phrase, some, some you know, spoken phrase to, towards a person that is rooted in some sort of bias, right? And I guess going along the theme of this show in particular, um, racial or ethnic bias. And a lot of times those things don't come across as overt racism, right? Because it's not people necessarily using like derogatory terms, for example. But again, it's some sort of slight towards a person. And I think it also has the effect of making the person who's receiving the comment or the action or what have you, you know, feel feel unwelcome or feel offended in some way, but it's almost more insidious. So it's kind of hard to pinpoint exactly why that is or to prove why the person's feeling the way that they're feeling. Insidious. That's exactly the right word to describe implicit racism. Folks might not even know that they harbor implicit bias, but people of color live their lives every day experiencing that implicit bias through microaggressions. Imagine the weight of going through your daily life knowing that there are people who not only see you differently, but will treat you differently because of the color of your skin. Now imagine that you experience that at work and in court. That's a heavy burden to shoulder. Jerome Crawford is the Director of Legal Operations and Social Equity for Pleasantries, a cannabis company in Michigan. Jerome identifies as a black man and has been practicing law for over eight years. Jerome experienced racism within the profession early on in his career when he was a summer associate. Let's just get broader. Let's talk about the field of law in general, and particularly law firms and the quote, quote unquote, big law firms, right? There's so few of us. I think back to my summer interning at one of the big law firms, and it was, I believe, summer of uh, 2010. And so I had a summer associate role I was in. And during that summer associate role, I was interning with a good friend of mine who also a black male, and he's a year ahead of me. So I was the 1L sort of rising 2L. He was the 2L rising 3L in in the same summer associate program. And the number of times, I mean, we lost count, that we'd be walking down the hallway and somebody would say, hey, Alex, hey, Alex, Alex. And they're talking to me, Jerome, or vice versa, calling Jerome and, and, and really it's Alex. We look nothing alike, you know, we're in the, in the world's black culture, we'll say, we're like, you know, I'm more of a caramel color and he's, and he's, you know, darker skinned. And so it, with total different features, different builds. And so we would, you know, we'd chuckle about it and we're still really close friends to this day. But it's something that always struck us. It was just like, that's that implicit racism that we definitely experience where we all don't look alike. And the fact that it happened multiple times, you know, we, we grow these thick skins and shake it off, but certainly was never right. Not okay. Paulina described how something similar happened to her supervisor, who is one of three tenured Latinx professors at the George Washington University Law School, even though he's been a faculty member since 1996. Because there's so few Latino professors at the law school, he actually gets called by the name of the other clinical professor who is also Latinx. Even though they don't look alike, my boss is shorter and like the other man is like tall and they're not even from the same country. And so, you know, he's like, other faculty call me, you know, so-and-so's name. And he's like, that's not my name. And I've been here since 1996. When I was a prosecutor in Albuquerque, New Mexico, I was routinely mistaken by my colleagues for a public defender whose skin is a similar color to mine. Otherwise, we look nothing alike. And indeed, we were opposing counsel who had what would charitably be referred to as an adversarial relationship. But that's a small inconvenience compared to what several of the young lawyers we spoke to have experienced. Jerome has had clients who assumed he was an intern or an assistant. If that wasn't bad enough, Jerome has also experienced racism from judges he's appeared in front of, including one incident during his first year of practice with a black female judge. I'll never forget my first year of practice in law. And it was actually, it leads me to to, to a, to a separate anecdote. And that in the Black community, I think because of these microaggressions, these experiences of implicit or explicit racism, we internalize that on ourselves. And then we actually outwardly put it back on other people of color or, or those that look just like us. 
So this was actually a black woman judge. I was covering a case for a partner who literally the last minute thing, hey, I can't be there. And I literally went to go into court and just tell the judge that the parties have settled. That's it. Opposing counsel couldn't be there because opposing counsel had informed the court and literally said he's going to be on vacation. Somebody need to represent the court. The parties have settled. Documentation forthcoming. So I'm there on behalf of basically the entire case. It's called like, there's no parties present, no clients, no attorneys. And I make the representation on the record, you know, send my P number like everyone does. And when she hears how high my P number is, which is my bar number, it like raised her eyebrows. And she goes, well, thank you, Mr. Crawford. I appreciate that. You know, given, given your neophyte status, I'll never forget those words. We're just going to double check and make sure. And you know why we can appreciate the term neophyte in the fraternal and Greek world. It was tongue in cheek, like, really? And even though I know she might have received it as, okay, your youth or age, there's a part of me that wonders if a young white attorney walked in, but she responded the same way, even as a black woman herself. There was no reason, there was no representation that was material to change the case. It was a matter of, hey, we had a status conference, the parties were settled, documentation's forthcoming. And I never forget going back to the firm, white male attorneys, hey, man, that's BS. And he's thinking probably just you as a, as a younger associate, not thinking that there could have been some implicit areas of racism there, too. Sometimes the racism that lawyers of color experience occurs every day at court. Paulina regularly appears at immigration court, where she literally has to run a racist gauntlet just to get inside the courthouse to do her job. So in court, one thing that happens to me often when I go to court is there the, there's this bailiff that always just immediately speaks to me in Spanish. Even when I walk in and I greet him in English, I'm clearly carrying my client's files. I'm wearing a suit. I will walk in and say good morning and he'll go, pon tus cosas aquí, like put your stuff here on the conveyor belt because he assumes I'm a respondent in deportation proceedings. <laughs> you know, first time I was shocked. I didn't even know what to say. The second time I was with a student who was also a woman of color and she was shocked. And so then, you know, I called him out and I was like, I'm actually the attorney. And thankfully there was a another bailiff there who was a, also a woman of color. And she said, you know, oh yeah, she's the attorney. So she, I, I felt, I guess, grateful to have that support there. But this is just something that happens all the time. So it's like even walking in the door, it's like assumed because I'm brown that I'm obviously there to be in removal proceedings. It was very... <laughs> Clearly, like, not a, not a native Spanish speaker. And he knows, like, two phrases to get people, you know, in through the door when they come to immigration court, which is, like, put your stuff here and, like, what's the room number of your courtroom? <laughs> so he knows, like, two phrases that he says repeatedly. And actually, I've translated for him before, too, because sometimes he has to give more complicated instructions to people and I can see that he is really struggling. So I'll just turn to the person and I'll just explain to them in Spanish like what it is that he is trying to ask them to do. That's frustrating. I've also at court had other attorneys walk up to me because there's this weird thing in immigration court where sometimes attorneys are meeting their clients for the very first time at the court. They hadn't met previously. That's not really, that's not how we operate at the immigration clinic. But there was a, this attorney looking for his client and he came up to me and he was like, in Spanish, you know, like, are you my client? Are you with so-and-so? And I was like, no, I'm another attorney. <laughs> like, why does everyone, you know, keep thinking that I'm here for my hearing? And so I've gotten that. <sighs> Thankfully, nothing outwardly racist from the judges, although the age thing, you know, plays into it too. I've gotten, oh, so what year are you in law school? <laughs> I'm like, I am a fifth year practicing attorney. I don't know. Maybe that isn't rooted in racism, too. I don't know. But there's just a lot of disrespect going on. Of course, racism isn't happening just at court or in the office. Even law students can be racist towards their professors. In one particularly painful experience, Paulina was blatantly disrespected by a law student in a class she was teaching at GW. Last fall, I taught for the first time a full legal course at GW. I taught immigration law one while my boss was on sabbatical. And, you know, it was pretty intimidating. Um, a lot of imposter syndrome, you know, first time teaching. I had taught some classes here and there, but never, you know, a full course. I did a lot to prepare because, you know, I one thing I found that combats imposter syndrome is when I feel very prepared for class. And so I like to think that some of that imposter syndrome was not being conveyed to the students. However, I definitely think because of what I call the trifecta, I'm young, I'm a woman, I'm Latina, 
some students did not respect me the way that I felt that they would have respected, you know, some other faculty at the law school who were older, white, and male. And so one example of this in particular was I was having a discussion with the class and some opinions were solicited about whether or not a person, a business owner in this this case, their statements were contradictory. Several women of color spoke up in the class and they all, you know, agreed with my personal view, but I was trying to be neutral in the discussion because, you know, for the sake of discussion, I was trying to be the arbiter, right, in, in that scenario. And this white male student, you know, felt differently. And so I called on him, you know, of course, want to hear his what his opinion was going to be. However, he was saying some things that I just knew that were flatly wrong. And so I was trying to get him to develop what he was saying further. And so I was asking him some open-ended questions, you know, switching up the the hypotheticals because, you know, that's what we do in law school <laughs> when we're when we're questioning our students. And so I was trying to do that, but every time I went to speak to him, he would interrupt me. And this happened like maybe three or four times. And it got so bad that I had to tell him in front of the whole class, stop interrupting me. I was like, I let you say what you had to say. And now I'm trying to explain to you and ask you follow-up questions to get you to flesh out your thoughts further. And so let me finish. And then I would love to hear what you have to say. So I finished talking and then I'm like, and then I asked him, would you like to finish what you were saying? And he just wouldn't even look at me. He looked just looked straight ahead and was like, no, with like a tone like that. <laughs> and I didn't know what to do, right? Because I'm in front of my entire class. They're all watching me. Meanwhile, I'm like so upset that this is happening, right? That this person's like blatantly challenging my authority in front of the class. And so I just had to like take a deep breath, collect myself, and I just kept going and I just kept teaching my class. But after I was so upset, like I called my boss, I was crying. I was like, this is so disrespectful. And what actually happened is later that evening, a woman of color in my class emailed me and she said that she had never seen such blatant disrespect in all of her higher education career and that she felt very strongly had the professor been a white, older male, that would have never happened. Although it's probably impossible to come up with an explanation for why people are racist, Andrew thinks that racism in the legal profession is rooted in the fact that for centuries, people of color were excluded from being lawyers. Women and other people of color and Black lawyers might be viewed as an aberration. So in contravention of these centuries of lawyers in the United States being overwhelmingly white men and older white men, right? I think that is kind of the archetype that is the model that folks have in mind when they're thinking of a lawyer. And that has certainly applied to how I have engaged with the legal community, I think, Again, having the benefit of being a civil rights lawyer, a number of spaces that I occupy where people who are cognizant and are diligent about combating those implicit biases. But then in certain spaces that I occupy, there might be a look of skepticism offered or maybe deference given to an older lawyer who's a white man if we're both occupying the same space and, let's say, in a case together because of that centuries-long history and that perception that so many folks have that a lawyer is a specific type of person. We hope you're enjoying this episode. We'll be right back after this message from our sponsor. The Velvet Hammer podcast is a down-and-dirty look at what really makes trial lawyers tick. Nationally recognized and award-winning plaintiff attorney, Karen Kohler is an aggressive, charismatic, and dominating litigator wrapped up in a sweet little mommy-grandma package. Her colorful stories teach lessons drawing upon 35 years of experience, including the sensational four-month Ride the Duck trial in Seattle. Subscribe for free on your favorite podcasting app. Welcome back, listeners. We're picking up right where we left off. We now return to our episode already in progress. In order to address what's happening to lawyers of color, we need to have allies. In case you're not familiar with the term ally, an ally is someone who isn't a person of color, but wants to stand in solidarity with us. So what can allies do to be more supportive of lawyers of color? Tiana believes that lawyers who aren't people of color need to hold themselves accountable through self-reflection. 
folks have to take some personal responsibility for the biases that they sort of feel and sort of the biases that they put out there. I don't know for a fact, I don't sit there and talk to white men, I guess, or like, you know, white women and say, okay, what biases do you feel towards me? I think that's the reason, you know, the reason why we don't talk about it is because it is implicit and folks think that they have their, they're putting their best foot forward. They, people are quick to say, oh, I'm not racist or, oh, I don't treat people differently. But I think it's sort of a systematic sort of impression that people have. And I think particularly in the legal community, because we don't often see Black women and because we often don't see Black people who are attorneys and in this space, when people do see them in this space, it's kind of like cognitive dissonance, right? I think they're like, oh gosh, there's a Black woman here. She couldn't possibly be, you know, the lead attorney on this case. And it's like, why do you think that? Why do you think that I couldn't possibly be? Because those are what my experiences are. It's like I walk into a room and somebody instantly thinks that I'm a secretary. And I'm like, what What makes you think I'm a secretary? Or, you know, I, I walk into a courthouse and I sit at the table and someone thinks I'm an intern. And they're like, where's the partner? And I'm like, I don't need a partner. Like, I'm going to argue this motion and beat you <laughs> by myself. So I think the shift has to take place on a bigger level. And we have to have folks be held accountable. But I also think there has to be some personal reflection of people and they have to take it upon themselves as a personal shift, as personal growth. And as, you know, how, what can they do for their role in all of this to, to make it a little bit better? And I, you know, I think now is the perfect time for people to sort of do this self-examination of what biases do I hold? What what can I do to move the needle forward? Because I think that's what it takes. It's it's just I'm only I'm a brand new, not brand new. I'm I've only been around for about six years. So the I know this much out of the years and years and decades and millennia or whatever of you know lawyers. But I do think that a on you know on one level we have to have a big sort of legal profession shift. But then leaders specifically, I think, have to check themselves for biases and then hold their partners, the other leaders, other mentors, other sponsors, whoever, accountable as well. Jerome advises lawyers who want to be better allies and more supportive of their colleagues of color to consider what he calls the three A's, awareness, accountability, and action. You know, I, I use these kind of these, these, three, these three A's to talk about a lot. The first one is awareness. And it's being aware that there is an issue of systemic racism. There is an issue of implicit and explicit biases that exist within our community. And guess what? You may have had nothing to do with it. And that's okay, right? Like, the start, they start with this awareness. You know, some people often say, well, I'm of a generation where I didn't have any slaves and, and neither did my parents or my grandparents. But just because we're farther removed from someone's recent history doesn't mean that the history doesn't exist. So I think it's the first thing is awareness that there is a problem because when we're dismissive, it makes people feel marginalized even more, makes them feel like they don't matter. So awareness that there's a problem. Second one is accountability. And by accountability, that means you may have played a role in perpetuating, if not causing, but at least perpetuating parts of this continuing problem. And that could be something as simple as, hmm, how have I not been accountable? And maybe I didn't check that coworker that made that off-color comment. Right. Maybe that family member at the family reunion that went a little bit too far and people kind of chuckled but felt uneasy. You know, I didn't speak up at the moment and just say, hey, guys, let's let's not talk like that. Right. Where were those moments? And then looking forward, how can I hold myself more accountable? And then the last part, of course, is action, taking that action. It's a forward looking you know, thought process. But I don't think you can get to action. I think oftentimes in, in the ally community, particularly as you've seen by Black Lives Matter movement and just a lot of the, the recent protests and civil unrest around, you know, killings of unarmed Black people in, in, in recent times, but really just for decades and hundreds of years, you're seeing people, there's, they want to take action. How can I help? How can I help? And I'm very quick to say, do the first two steps. First, have some awareness of the issue, which maybe you do because that you're here right now saying you want to help. But then look at accountability. And accountability is not a blame game. I think people sometimes think, well, if I'm accountable, does that mean I'm a racist? Right. Does that mean I I did something so bad that I can never come back from? Like forgiveness is real. Right. But you can't have forgiveness even of yourself and acknowledgement until you've until you've taken inventory. Right. But then the last piece, again, it's going to be action. So I, I when I put it in more practical terms, I'll give one anecdote and one nugget that I think is important to share from times I've spent in like our uh, good guys program initiative through the national car conferences of uh, women bar associations. 
And what they've always recommended is they always give these takeaways about what can I go and do tomorrow, right? What, what can I take from this program? What can I do tomorrow? So one thing everybody can do tomorrow, if you're listening to this podcast, if you're a member of the majority, if you say, I want to be a better ally, be willing to have open and honest conversations with those that don't look like you, namely people of color. And simply that, listen and ask questions. And I'll give you two strategies that make that in a way you can do it. In the Oakland County uh, Bar Association, which is Oakland County is a, a predominantly right affluent county in the state of Michigan. They did a diversity event a few years back and they used these two card placards that you could hold up in the meeting. It was like a safe space, right? One said PEMI, one said PEMH. And they stood for respectively, please excuse my ignorance and please excuse my honesty. And it really led to some interesting moments you'd never see happen where you had, you know, bar association president that could raise and say, please excuse my honesty. When we're talking at the time, they're talking about issues of gender identity. Say, guess what? I'm used to always ask somebody, how is the family, right? Because I have assumptions on, on what maybe how someone may present that that is the gender they identify with, right? For instance, or somebody that I assume looks a certain color, maybe has had the same cultural experience as me. So you're asking questions that you're not realizing and asking those questions, those questions have areas of implicit racism because that person wouldn't have had the same access, right? To do the same, maybe, I don't know, throw it out rowing activity or golf activity when they were 12 or 13 like you. And so his honesty was saying, sometimes I just avoid those conversations. And I appreciate his honesty, but the challenge going forward is saying, don't avoid them. Challenge yourself to learn the lingo that you need to do and then push yourself to be able to engage in those moments where you can. To engage where you can, Andrew says that you should have the hard conversations and get involved with bar associations and with local and state governments. So first, I'd say engage in those hard conversations in your homes, and your communities, especially for white people, and take the initiative to continually educate yourself about the history of white supremacy on which this country was founded. I, again, appreciate the enthusiasm with which people reached out to me earlier this summer. I need folks to keep it up, right? Just as <laughs> I have been experiencing systemic racism as a Black man for the past 29 years, then you should be continually, as a white lawyer, really engaging in text by writers like, let's say, Isabel Wilkerson, Todd Nehesi Coates, these really, Tony Morrison, folks who have really thought and beautifully put to paper the experience of Black people and other historically underserved people across this nation's history. And do that work continually, right? And make sure that you're engaging in that work and not asking for people who are impacted by these systems, most directly impacted, to do that training and education for you. Two, I would say champion policy changes, both within organizations and within your communities. So with the ABA and its assembly, especially for the YLD, I think it's an important method of engagement for lawyers to really propose forward-thinking, progressive language for resolutions that come up at assembly every year to say that you know, white supremacy is something that has explicitly and detrimentally impacted for people across generations, and this is how it is manifested in the legal system, and talk about those manifestations, right, like policing. And say, oh, for example, qualified immunity is a doctrine that has permitted so many police officers to act with impunity and really perpetuate these systems of oppression and use that policy making device like very liberally. And then on that same vein, I would say also engage in your local community, I think, through advocacy at let's say school board meetings or city council meetings, folks are engaged in these conversations and have been throughout the summer about defunding the police. I think that's a very necessary conversation to be having, right? Kind of recognizing how white supremacy is manifested in the prison industrial complex. It's like we must take concrete steps to minimize its impact and ultimately do away with it. And vocally go and lend your time and effort to either testifying in front of these legislative bodies or supporting local community organizations within your community 
with pro bono support. It's not enough, though, for our colleagues in the legal profession to be better allies to people of color. That's a necessary step, but law schools and legal employers should and can do more. For Tiana, legal employers should reach out to people of color early on, precisely because the systemic racism and structures of power that have historically marginalized us have also deprived us and our families of the experience and knowledge we need to pursue the law as a career. My parents didn't go to college, didn't graduate from college. My dad's grand or my dad's parents did. So my paternal grandparents went to college, but no one is a lawyer. No one works in a, you know, sort of white collar setting. No one is a doctor. No one is an engineer. So like I'm the first in my family to even make it to this level. And honestly, I kind of just, I, to God be the glory, but I kind of just sort of stumbled into my career path because I didn't know what, what I was supposed to be doing. I didn't know what a lawyer actually did other than what I saw, you know, on Law and Order and kind of a couple of things on TV, but like I had no clue. And I was kind of teaching myself a little bit along the way. I had good professors. I, you know, just by nature am curious. So I started to ask people questions and really started to question what I wanted to do. But I I can't imagine that the stories of other young Black women or young people of color, I, don't, I can't imagine that they're much different from mine. I mean, of course, there are people who are out there that have their parents who are lawyers and whatever, and bless them. That's amazing. But there are a lot of us who are the first. And in order to reach the first and have them also be successful, I mean, at the end of the day, folks are going to need you know, resources. They're going to need to know what that looks like. They're going to need to know where they can go. I mean, representation matters in all of these contexts. If you can see a person who looks like you in these situations and then also see sort of the infrastructure, the law firms, the the organizations also reaching out to you saying, yes, we can help you. Yes, we want you here. Yes, you can do this. I think then it is more, it is possible. And I think that pipeline can be strengthened and more people of color will flow into it because right now we all know it's not a secret that the the legal profession has a diversity problem. Like it, it has had it for a long time. I don't see it changing too much too quickly. And specifically here in Minnesota, we, we have a lot of work to do and we are constantly talking about it. And I feel like that's what it is in Minnesota. We're, we're doing a lot of talking and we, people are trying. I'm not going to minimize the efforts, but, you know, not a lot has changed based on some of the statistics that I've seen coming out, you know, of, of Minnesota and, and the greater, you know, nation. But we, we have a lot of work to do. And as women of color, we can only do so much on a micro level. We need the help of our organizations on a macro level and people to really be dedicated to doing it. Like I said, whether it's starting young, putting more money into folks, I don't know, creating pipelines, scholarships, whatever, it's going to take some effort and it's going to take some money. And so when you also talk about money, people kind of shy away from it and they're like, gosh, you know, I'm going to sink all this money into these programs, but it's like, put your money where your mouth is. If you, if the legal profession really is about diversity, they're going to find a way to get it done and it's going to cost money. And that's just what it is. That's a sentiment shared by Paulina, who started an online community called Hermanas in the Law for Latina legal professionals to provide support and inspiration to each other. Less than 2% of all U.S. attorneys are Latina. And I very much, you know, feel that loneliness of being, you know, either the only or the first in many different spaces that I navigate in the legal profession. And so that was that was the motivation behind starting Hermanas in Law in the first place. And something that could be done in the legal profession is creating more spaces like that that are supportive. Because information sharing, I feel like, is really important for communities of color, especially, you know, those going into higher ed and especially going into the legal profession. You know, a lot of times people come to me to ask questions that they either just don't have anyone to ask those questions to, or they just feel embarrassed to maybe ask those questions of other folks. And so just having a place, right, where you can just go ask, you know, when's the best time to submit my law school application, things like that, and and be able to get feedback. And then, you know, things like scholarships, things like that, getting that information too, because... One of the things I've also seen through Hermanas in the Law is that there's a lot of barriers even to entry <laughs> to, to law school. And a lot of them have to do with finances because, you know, to take an LSAT prep course, that costs thousands of dollars. To put down your seat deposit, 
Um, I learned actually at my alma mater where I now work, the seat deposit was several thousands of dollars. And, you know, beyond that, tuition, very costly. Um, you and I know because we have a lot of law school debt um, that we're dealing with. And then after that, it's also very costly because you're studying for the bar. That prep course also costs a pretty penny. And a lot of times people don't work while they're studying for the bar um, and they need to have money to be able to sustain themselves while they're taking those two, two and a half months off to study for the bar exam. So there's also, there's those initial barriers to entry, right, that are financial. And then there's those barriers that sort of continue on throughout all the way up to, to taking the bar exam. And so I think that's something that really dissuades a lot of people of color. Um, so maybe even, you know, programs, right, that address those things could be one way that people folks in the legal profession specifically, right, could be better allies so that we're even, you know, we even have literally seats, <laughs> being able to place our seat deposits, having seats in law school. But then beyond that, right, it's also we need to look at retention, retention in law school, you know, having support to get through the really challenging coursework, retention when we're out in the legal profession, you know, that's a big issue in lots of different legal spaces, but I'm just thinking particularly like big law, right, like partnership track. Tiana's firm, Dorsey & Whitney, started a program that gives associates credit for up to 50 billable hours when they spend time working on diversity initiatives. For Tiana, this program is a step in the right direction that allows attorneys to be their whole, authentic selves at work. As a Black woman, I live diversity, you know, every single day. The way I interpret the world is so different from a lot of my peers. And I want people to know that. Like, I don't want it to be a secret that when George Floyd was shot and killed, sorry, not shot, but murdered in Minnesota, two miles away from my house, I have to deal with that and bring that into work. I can't separate the two. And I just recall that week being so difficult because people are just sort of, you know, business as usual. And they didn't mean it. You know, they didn't mean it. It was just kind of like, we got to get this brief out the door. We got to get these documents out the door. We got to do this. We got to do that. What's the status on this? And I just recall probably the Thursday of that week being like, I can't even can't even do this anymore. So I, you know, called my department head and was saying, I told her, hey, I need a day because this, this is a lot going on. And to see, you know, another black man murdered just like in broad daylight, it's we see it on TV. That's not normal. It's not normal to see that sort of thing. And as a black person, you know, you see that and you internalize it in a different way. I mean, I got calls from like a colleague sobbing as a black man saying, I am scared to go outside after seeing this. He lives in Minnesota. And so, you know, to have to bring that to work with you every day, it also being, you know, you're being asked to check it at the door and focus on your work, I think it's, it's impossible. And I think that's one of the things that maybe folks are more privy to now and understand a little bit now, especially in Minnesota, that we, we can't only bring our professional selves to work. We bring our Black professional selves to work, grandma in the hospital, you know, doing this family don't have enough money, whatever. We bring our whole selves to work. And I think that's, you know, something that needs to be, I think there needs to be a little bit of grace behind that. And I don't always think that there is in the legal profession. So, you know, for me, like I said, I spend a ton of time making sure people around me are just like educated and understand that like the circumstances and the experiences of people of color, not just black people, is completely different for, you know, Honestly, just the majority, you know, the, the experience of a, a white man is, is probably, not probably, is more privileged than any other person of color. And they need to know what we're going through. So I spend time making sure that these folks know what we're going through. And that takes time away from my billable requirement, right? So to, for Dorsey to sort of acknowledge that I'm spending 50 hours or more of time doing these sorts of things that maybe other people aren't doing I'm glad that now I get some billable credit for that. But it's also important to recognize that it's a burden for people of color to take on responsibility for educating their colleagues about racism. If you're a lawyer of color, what can you do to be your authentic self and also take care of yourself as you're navigating the daily burden of microaggressions and a pandemic that has disproportionately impacted people of color? Andrew makes a significant effort to create space in his life to engage in self-care. I think we have to 
be very intentional as public interest lawyers about practicing self-care and recognizing that rest is going to be an essential part of our revolution. You know, one social media account that I follow and greatly admire is called the Nat Ministry, and it was founded by a Black woman theologian maybe in 2013 who has this liberatory framework in mind concerning rest as reparations, right? It's like, we understand this white supremacist, capitalist, patriarchal society that we live in and have to operate in. And you know what? I'm going to be intentional, the founder of the NAP ministry says, about taking rest when I'm tired, right? You know, doing my work, understanding that I might, as a public interest lawyer, be incredibly blessed to be doing the work that I'm passionate about and that I love, but also understanding that as a human being, there's only so much that I can do at a given time. And to be very deliberate about resting and about making sure that your holistic personhood is at the front line of your thinking as you engage in this advocacy. And I think that that's a, a very non-linear path of engagement, right? Like some weeks might look like your standard eight hours of rest a night. And then other weeks might be like truly just, <laughs> you know, emailing a boss maybe saying, you know what, I need to just take a few days. Like all of this news about the coronavirus pandemic and protests against police violence have weighed on me. I just need to take a couple of days to recharge and take the email off of your phone and, you know, turn your phone off if you have the, the privilege to do so, right? And just really be intentional about that rest. Paulina leans on her supervisor, who's also her mentor. And as she mentioned earlier, one of the few tenured Latinx professors at GW Law, Paulino also relies on networks she's cultivated through being active in her local bar association and through Hermanas in the Law. The Hispanic Bar Association of D.C., which has been my, like, legal family (laughs) since 1L, you know, I have them to turn to. And similarly, you know, both of those communities, they're very understanding. Um, So one thing is just talking it out, right, and just having your feelings validated because— with microaggressions, right, You a lot of times you feel like, am I being crazy? Like, am I reading too much into this? And it's like, no, you're, you're absolutely not. And it, it helps to hear someone else say that to you. Like Andrew does, Paulina also makes time for self-care activities that are not related to work. I just make sure that I have things for myself that are just unrelated to what I do on a day-to-day basis because those things help to unwind from like the weightiness of having to deal, you know, with microaggressions at work and in the legal profession generally. And then certainly, you know, practicing immigration law and dealing with others' trauma, that's also something that weighs heavily on my, on my mind. And so I try to do things for myself, you know, spend time with friends as much as I can in a socially distant, responsible way nowadays, you know, spend time with my cat, but also do things that celebrate people of color. So my goal this year is to only read books by authors of color. And so far, I've done a very good job on that. And I love to read for pleasure. I've been reading a lot of fiction, something that kind of dropped off when I was in law school because I had to read all my my case law. But um, that's something I take a lot of joy in. So try to have some activities for myself that are, you know, outside of my everyday life. But self-care is about more than engaging in activities that nourish your body and soul outside of the office. Self-care is ultimately self-love and self-acceptance. Jerome's experience of racism in the legal profession has led him to lean into who he authentically is even more. Even microaggressions present an opportunity to live his truth. When you first start practicing in a large way, you're finding a way to fit in, right? It's not you know, shake things up too much. It's fit in the mold. But nowadays, it's encouraged me to live even more authentically than I have before. I'll give you context. I've never been one where, and I've got a military background, family, my father's in the military in the army. And, you know, even though I never went into job interviews or firms in the quote unquote, you know, professional world and made a point to say, shave my facial hair, right? I'd always kept my hair, it was like a, you know, a low cut and I'd make sure my facial hair was well manicured, but I never assimilated to that part. 
Fast forward to now, you'll see me and I've got locks and I got a huge beard, right? <laughs> and I make it a point that I don't have to quote unquote dress the part everywhere I go. So even though I know that people look at me and sometimes would never think I'm a lawyer, I actually use it as an opportunity to educate. And I give you just really, one really quick story on it. We've talked a little bit offline about the Men of Color Project as well. This great initiative that was started by Tommy Preston, our chair of the ABA Young Lawyers Division 2018-2019. And I was part of that founding inaugural team of members and, and had a chance to co-chair this past year along with uh, Michael Nguyen. And one thing we focused on is basically being an empowerment for young male attorneys of color in those first kind of five years of practice from law school going those first five years. And we realized that representation is a huge issue because many of us don't, quote, look the part. So when I was actually at an expungement fair, this is a little bit before the pandemic, working at expungement fair, I hold at a local church and I've done several expungement fairs clinics over the years. I've done them personally for friends and you know acquaintances over the years. And at this event, we're having a large training session. I'm, and I'm happy to be going around the room actually helping people with the training because certain parts of it may be a little confusing or complicated. They bring the box lunches in the room and they will them in for the attorneys in the big attorney training room. And I walk up and say, attorneys, come help yourself to the box lunches. I walk up. Now at the time, it's a Saturday. So what am I wearing? Got a hoodie on, got some jeans on, pair of sneakers. I think my earrings were even in, right? And I walk up to there and the gentleman sort of stops me and says, hold, hold on, my brother. These, these lunches are for the attorneys. And I look around to my left and right and people who know I'm an attorney are wondering how am I respond? They have this look of shock on their face. And I say, I know, man, I appreciate it though. Thank you. And I take two of them because I was taking one back to another colleague of mine. And I watch his brain begin to process, wait, that's an attorney? Attorneys look like that? But the part that was even more telling about it was that this was a black man, <laughs> an older black gentleman that actually made that comment. So I realized when I say, how does racism affect my life? What it does is it just tells me to keep living my truth. You know, I love when people try to guess my profession. When I walk in the gym and they say, oh, you know, I, mean, I got a hoodie and, you know, sweats on because what you wear to the gym. <laughs> but when somebody finally figures out oh, he's an attorney, they always want to go. First question is, well, what kind of attorney? <laughs> what exactly do you do? And so I really enjoy it because it's an opportunity to educate through living our truth. So it thankfully, I'm very fortunate that it didn't affect me to a point where I ever felt I needed to totally assimilate or that I needed to totally, you know, not be myself. I wasn't all the way. Like I said, that's me being honest. I don't think any of us are early on. But where I am now, it's making a point that, yeah, I know it's out there. And I think these little moments allow me to educate those so that people don't judge books by their covers. Jerome has advice for young lawyers who are trying to bring their whole, authentic selves into this profession. There's a balance, right? <laughs> it doesn't mean out of the gate that you just, you know, come in and quote unquote, let your hair all the way down, so to speak. But what it does mean, and a lot of things in life is about how you do something, not the what you do. So sometimes there's ways of maybe challenging a microaggression instead of that microaggression may have felt macro. You may have felt huge. It may have felt gigantic. But you know it's a microaggression. There's a way sometimes to be able to pull somebody aside in a one-on-one -on -one if it was a true microaggression or something that was just truly out of line. Don't embarrass people. Pull them aside. Try to have conversation and, and learn from each other. Share your truth with them in those moments and those conversations. Now, it takes courage, right? Because early on in your career, you're thinking about that paycheck. You're likely thinking about student loan debt. You're thinking about, I need this job to matriculate, to go forward. So it can be hard if like, I'm going to stand up to these people around me. And we get that question a lot. People say, I'm just starting. How do I stand up? Right. Almost like people feel like they got to just keep it all in until I'm three to five years of practice, <laughs> five to seven years of practice. Now I can speak up. And I encourage you to say, no, you can live courageously now, but try to do so within reason. If there's still a dress code, the job, then follow the dress code. By dress code, generally, you're talking about articles of clothing. But as you particularly see with the emergence of the uh, the Crown Act recently, as well as in the Black community, particularly like you know, natural hair, right? Like, oh, it's okay for my hair to look this way. It doesn't quote unquote need to look a certain way, right? So we're beginning to redefine that. And it's okay, I think, to, to use an intentional step. There may be baby steps at first, but it's about the how you do it, the how you do it in living your truth in that way. Being a lawyer of color can be an isolating, painful experience, but representation matters. And the more of us that stay in this profession and help it change, the more that people see that lawyers look like everyone. Lawyers have a unique role to play in our society. People turn to us during some of the worst moments of their lives. Clients need culturally competent representation, which diverse lawyers can help provide. 
there is a pathway forward. If you're not a person of color, you can be a better, more supportive ally to your colleague who is. If you're in a position of influence at a legal employer, you can encourage your organization to put their money where their mouth is, to actually commit to real actions that will help diversify the profession and retain diverse lawyers. Together, change is possible. To close our show today, Matthew Kerbis has our next Financial Wellness Minute. Let's be real. It's hard to save money. I have a real love-hate relationship with saving money. But Matthew has some practical tips to make that more love and less hate. Here's Matthew. Thanks, Sonia. In our last Financial Wellness Minute, we talked about tracking the amount you earn and spend. Now let's focus on the choice of what you're spending money on. Mentally separate spending into two categories— needs, and wants. At first, you might think something is a need, but upon further examination, it's really a want. Think about your spending needs as absolutely essential, food, water, and shelter. For example, I bet you think coffee is essential. I mean, of course it is. How am I going to have a productive day without it? Without coffee, my energy levels go way down, and I'll be much less productive at work. But how are you purchasing that coffee? If coffee is essential for you, then is it essential that you buy it brewed elsewhere? Probably not. But let's take this a step further so you can understand just how in-depth you can go with this exercise of determining what is truly essential to spend your money on. Coffee is not essential at all. What's essential is you have a productive day. Or in other words, the results of what coffee gets you is essential, not coffee itself. You can cut coffee out of your spending by going to bed earlier and getting better sleep. If you need that burst of energy in the morning, then eat some fruit and go for a run to get your blood flowing. That will wake you up just as much, if not more, than drinking coffee, and your body will thank you for it. This way, you can eliminate your coffee spend while meeting your diet and exercise needs. So take some time and re-examine what you're spending money on. Ask yourself, is it essential? And if so, why? Is that item essential, or is it the result that's essential? Are there other ways to achieve that result by spending less or eliminating the spend altogether? No need to live a completely austere life but doing this exercise will help you get more control over your finances so that when you want to purchase that luxury thing or experience, it doesn't break the bank. This Financial Wellness Minute is brought to you by the ABA YLD Student Loan Debt and Financial Wellness Team. Back to you, Sonia. And that's our show. It's been great having this opportunity to write and co-produce this production. Stay tuned for our next episode. Thank you to my team for their support. Nadine Graves and Maritza Perez for their fantastic conducted interviews. Matthew Curvis for his Financial Wellness Minute. And last but not least, the audio professionals at Legal Talk Network. Until next time, I'm Sonia Russo, and this is Young Lawyer Rising from the American Bar Association Young Lawyers Division. Thank you.